Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes and I would like to first of all acknowledge the First Nations peoples of Australia past, present and future. Today we have an interview with Michael Muhammad Ahmed on his novel The Other Half of You. Michael was recently interviewed or Muhammad was recently interviewed on this channel for his book which he edited after Australia. That's a few episodes ago. It's worth reading and it's worth listening to Muhammad's views in that interview. Muhammad is the founding director of the Sweatshop Literary Movement and the editor of that book, After Australia. He's written three books, the debut novel, The Tribe, followed by a second book called The Lebs, and now this book called The Other Half of You. I haven't yet read the first two, but like a great, piece of literature this stands alone so i'm not sure if it is a part of a trilogy but this is a book that can simply be read as a self-standing work good afternoon muhammad um good afternoon to you bead and thank you for having me back on your podcast and i also always love to begin by saying salamu alaikum which means peace be upon you oh thank you i hope it rubs off well i all well in that case i extend the peace to all of our wonderful listeners Yes, thank you very much. Now, this book, The Other Half of You, the first thing I would like to ask you is how this book came to exist. Thank you for that question. So I'll start by framing it um, by going back to your introduction um, and talking about my first two books. So I wrote The Tribe in 2014 and I wrote The Lebs in 2018. And um, in some ways this is part of a trilogy. It is the conclusion to a autobiographical series of books that I've been producing over the last decade. Um, But also, as you pointed out, I write my work as standalone novels. So each book speaks for itself and it has its own start, middle and end. And and, uh, each one has its own framing and and backstory so that you don't need to read the previous books to know where you're up to. Um, I began literally writing this book, The Other Half of You, the very night my son, Khalil Issa Ahmed, was born. So you would know because you've read the book, uh, be that uh, it's written as a letter to my son, Khalil. And mm. uh, we, we named him after the very famous Lebanese poet, Khalil Gibran. And the night he was born, I remember I was in the hospital room with his mom. His mom was fast asleep. You know, when there's a new baby in the in the hospital, <laughs> when we say mom's fast asleep, we mean probably for half an hour to an hour at max. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a scattered night. It was a hard night for both of us, but especially for her. But in that moment where she was getting a little bit of rest, I remember having Khalil asleep in my right arm. And I remember pulling out my phone and writing out the very first scenes that now exist in the other half of you, which was uh, the scenes in which I detail um, in that moment his birth. Ah. So on your on your phone, 
Did you the say? The first scenes, yes. Uh, so yeah. just so you know, that that he was born in 2016. So I began writing The Other Half of You even two years before the Lebs had come out, The you know, the my my second novel. And right. so, um, you know, I was sitting down and writing out these scenes, not too sure what they were going to be yet, not too sure that they were going to actually culminate into a novel. I was just doing what writers do, which is getting this – a very strong experience that I'd had off my chest. And I think it's important to understand that if you're trying to understand how writers work, that most writers, they're not writers because they want to be famous or because they want to be writers or because they want to have books. Most writers are writers because they just have a natural impulse to get something off their chests, to say something. And, mm. um, and so I remember, you know, I was so swept up in the emotion of that night that I just had to, express what I had experienced. And because I am a writer, the way I express my experiences is through writing, is through words. And I remember expressing these thoughts and feelings on my phone. Um, in terms of what actually I wrote that night and then what crossed over into the actual book, there might be about 200 words out of this 95,000 word novel. Um, but, but I still remember that that was the, the moment that I began the journey of creating this novel. Right. Now, one thing I want to commence with is, and I really, I really, I made a note in my book where it's about the second page, and you there's a you're having a coffee or not you the the main character is having a coffee in Newtown, and then there's another switch and it goes to a place called Bankstown, and I circled both of those, and I thought, good, he hasn't told me where these places are. This is an author I can trust. It's just up to me. And the book keeps that going through it. It's a real exercise in show, don't tell. There are suburbs named. It's in Sydney. There are streets that that I just, I've walked down. There's kebab shops referred to in it that I've walked past, and I, I kind of know the shop even. And I want to ask as the author, what decision-making goes into how you will reference place in a novel? Yeah, thank you. That's a fantastic question. It's the first time I've been asked questions about what we understand to be place-based literature. A lot of people who talk to me um, just know me as the, you know, the award-winning author from the western suburbs of Sydney, and just kind of assume that these places are going to be uh, detailed, and so they don't take those opportunities to actually ask me about what it means to be creating these landscapes as a conscious decision, uh, because I am consciously creating this place. So the way it is, um, the way I do it as a storyteller and the way I try to create um, the worlds that my characters inhabit is um, through uh, what, what I would probably call as a creative writer specific detail. Uh, like you pointed out, I'm not telling you what places are and where they are geographically in Sydney or even more broadly Australia I just want to show you that place and through showing you I would like to think that any reader literally anywhere in the world in in Australia or in the United States of America or in the Middle East or in Europe or in Asia anywhere in the world can read the work and work out for themselves where the place is and what the place looks like and feels like and what makes it unique and specific what makes it a unique community um in the globe um and so 
for me as a writer, most of that requires very close observation. In in many ways, it's memory. I remember these places. But, you know, even walking in my own neighborhood in the western suburbs of Sydney, I always um, am paying attention to the way, you know, my community is dressed, to the way people are talking, to the, the, the unique aspects of the way the buildings are designed or the way um, the, the literally the, the weather patterns are playing out in those particular suburbs. And I, I really think that through the specific, we get the universal. The, the more I can zoom in on a community and show you a distinct uh, place, the more readers anywhere in the world would be able to connect with it because they get a very specific sense of this place. And they, they, they're able to recognize that this is different from anywhere else. Mm. And you mentioned zoom in there, which is one thing I wanted to come to. The book is set in Sydney, and there's it's not actually set within a very broad span of Sydney. From Glebe to Lakemba would probably not even be 20 kilometres. But there is almost as though these sections have different demarcations, so certain things, and I don't want to give away too much of the story, but certain things happen in Glebe, certain things happen in Belmore, certain things happen in Lakemba, Certain things happen within specific streets in Lakemba. And uh, and as an aside, there's a section where you talk about walking down, the, the characters walking down Canterbury Road at, at Lakemba past the McDonald's and the KFC. And I remember thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be great if someone did a, a, a video interview with you on this book, just walking through these places so people could actually see the uniqueness of of what might sound like it's mundane, but it's not really because it is actually part of somewhere in Sydney, and that's why the the books, at least as I thought, with the book was referencing it. The, so the the point I wanted to make is that it's it's almost as though the world Constantine is into Lakemba toward the end, and was that a conscious choice? To, even though you're working within say a twenty kilometer radius, you still hone right in as the as the tension of the novel builds. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think uh, Western Sydney um, is one of the most compelling communities in Australia and is building an internationally recognised literary community. So there's been a tremendous wave of literature that's coming out of Western Sydney that is being internationally appreciated. And I think what's unique about Western Sydney and the suburbs you're describing, places like Lekemba, which is a suburb in Western Sydney, places like Bankstown, which is also featured in the novel and is also part of Western Sydney. Um, the, the thing about these regions and these areas is that um, we, we, the Western Sydney community, are the largest population of people in all of Australia. It's the, it's the most densely populated region in the country. And on top of that, it's the most culturally and linguistically diverse region in the country. So literally on one random street in the western suburbs of Sydney, 100 different languages could be spoken at any random moment in time. And on top of that, you also have the largest population of Indigenous people in the country living in western Sydney. And so um, I think this makes it, I, I know it's a cliche term, but this makes it a real melting pot, cultural melting pot, for compelling and interesting and unique stories. And in many ways, they're stories that haven't really been explored before. You know, the, the wave of new literature we're getting from Western Sydney is only about 20 years old. And so um, I think the reason why these locations that I'm describing, the demographics, the environments, the people there, and how that plays out, um, uh, I, I'd like to think that the reason why it's actually engaging and exciting to read 
uh, separate from the story itself, which I'm hope, which I'm confident we'll get to soon, is because it's a, um, it's such a unique place, not just in Australia but around the world. I got to tell you an interesting story uh, just to contextualize this. I remember one time, um, I was flying back from New York City. Uh, you know, I, I was I, I'd gone on a holiday to New York, and I was flying back to Australia from from the United States, and I was on. And the, there was a guy sitting next to me named Duncan, who was from New Zealand, and he, you know he was a globetrotter. So you know he, unlike me, I, I generally have probably travelled to about two or three places in my whole life, but this guy had been all over the world. And he told me, "Did you?" He said to me, "Did you enjoy being in New York?" And I said, "Yeah, I loved it." And I go, "What about you? Did you like it?" He goes, "Yeah, it was um, amazing. It's just like Lakemba." <laughs> and I thought that was such a bizarre comparison. I mean, I literally lived in Lakemba, this suburb in Western Sydney, Australia called Lakemba. And this guy who was from New Zealand, flying back home from New Zealand, you know, could have picked anywhere in the world to compare his experience of New York. And he compared it to this really random place that I happened to live in. And I told him, hey, actually, I, I'm from Lakemba. And I also want to point out, and this is the most interesting thing about Lakemba for me when I was growing up there, is that the suburb of Lakemba was so densely populated by people from Arab, Middle Eastern, and Muslim communities, and mostly people who were from Lebanese Muslim communities, that we affectionately came to call the, the place Lebkemba. And, right. um, and that, that features prom that idea of it being a very culturally specific place for Lebanese communities in Australia is something that I've always been exploring with, um, ex always been exploring in all of my writing. I mm. want to make one more point, if that's okay, um, because you, you've, you've brought up the suburb of Glebe uh, several times. Um, and so for, for people who don't know the demographics and the, uh, the, the, the geopolitics of, of Sydney very well, um, Glebe is about 20 kilometers away from, from the, the other places in the book like Lakemba. Um, but it's one of the more gentrified and middle class and upper middle class regions in the country. And so, um, you know, I talk a lot, uh, I talk affectionately about Western Sydney um, but I'm also, it's also a very strong political statement because it's about being proud of a region that's, that's seen as the poorer end and the more marginalized end of, of what we understand to be Sydney. Whereas Glebe, in contrast, is seen as a much more affluent and privileged and to be just completely frank about it, it's a much whiter community than the communities in Western Sydney. And so mm -hmm. I'm deliberately experimenting with that contrast in, in my, all of my writing. Interesting. Now... The novel itself, the story, the overview of the book, as I as I take it, is there is a man called Barney, B-A-N-I. I'm not sure if that's how you correctly say the name. And he is a son in a family. He has an elder brother, Balil. Is it Balil? Balil. And, and a, one of he has a, a sister, two parents, and it's a now, I'll ask you to comment on this, but my take of the story is it's a way in which this person, this character, breaks out from his his family and cultural connections and doesn't just destroy those connections, but works out a way to give himself some more freedom in the world, some more ability to be himself, to feel less confined and less restricted. And it's written as a letter to his son and the way in which the, his son comes about is something that I won't give away, but it's worth, it's actually worth the part of 
very worth reading in the book. And I have a, a few other questions based on some of that story structure, but I would like you to flesh that out as as far as you your expertise lets you from the all, and you've just told me you've done a lot of interviews for this book. So if you could give us your little rundown on the story. Yeah, very happy to do so. So firstly, let's start with the name of my main character. His name is Benny Adam. Um, and so I should be clear that that I've talked about the books as autobiographical. Um, to be more specific, the genre that I work in is called autofiction or autobiographical fiction. Um, and, and so it's a combination of like uh, fictional work, but um, at, in the... Um, I mean, it is fictional work, um, but it, but it's combined with autobiographical elements. So it's based on my real life, but it's very important for anybody to read it to understand that I, as a creative writer, as an artist, as a as a doc, as a person who has a doctorate in creative writing and has been working professionally in the field for ten years, that it's a it, it's a work of art first, and that I take a lot of creative liberties in telling the most compelling story that I can, separate to what my real life dictates. Now, the reason why I gave my autobiographical alter ego the name Bani Adam is because that term in Arabic isn't actually a name. It's a concept. It means um, child of Adam. Or to be even more precise, it's kind of the way we usually refer to humankind in, in the Arabic language. And the reason I gave my autobiographical self this name, Bani Adam, is because I think there's a historical demonization and dehumanization of Arab and Muslim communities, not just in Australia, but around the world. Um, and, you know, around the world, of course, you see the stereotyping of Arab and Muslim communities as mainly terrorists. Um, in Australia, there was a lot more specifically demonizing uh, portrayals of us in the mainstream media and in political rhetoric that's been going on since 9-11. Um, uh, stereotypes that Arab and Muslim communities are drug dealers, are, terror, are terrorist suspects, are sexual predators, are, um, are gangsters who participate in drive-by shootings. And, and, you know, there's literally thousands of news reports that, that reinforce these prejudice uh, uh, portrayals of us. And so a large portion of my work is about trying to literally reclaim our humanity and offer not necessarily positive, but complex and three-dimensional portrayals of who we are as a community. And so I, I gave my main character the name humankind because it's always right. trying to go back to that, to that idea that this is a complex human being. He's capable of uh, acts of great beauty and great poetry, which you've seen in the book. And he's very articulate and, and, and you know, he, he draws from the literary canon and to make sense of his reality. And, and at the same time, he can reinforce violent thoughts, misogynistic thoughts, homophobic thoughts, um, pretty much like anybody. He's a complex character who has, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses. Um, now, the story of Benny in The Other Half of You is that at this particular stage in his life, you know, he's in his early 20s, and he's starting to think about, uh, you know, things like getting married. That might sound very young uh, for a general audience to for me to share with, but for Arab and Muslim communities, it's not. I remember very, you know, early, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, um, feeling a lot of pressure from my family, as well as my brother and sisters were feeling to get married and, you know, start having kids straight away. And so in many ways, the novel is looking at Benny's journey towards finding his life partner. And uh, I, I appreciate you saying you don't want to give away the book. And I, and I think it's, it's, there is a real surprise to who Benny ends up with, but, and, and, and um, what the outcome of the journey is. But, but I will say that 
Ultimately, the, the story is about Benny pushing up against his community, his tribe. That's what he calls them, a tribe. And, and in, pretty, in, in many ways, going to war with them so that he doesn't end up with the person that they, they've pushed him to marry and ultimately ends up with the person that he chooses in order to bring his son into the world. And the story is basically a story trying to explain to Khalil this, you know, mixed race, you know, um, third generation Arab Australian Muslim uh, baby, uh, explaining how he came into this world. Mm. The um, one a theme along those lines, and I'd like you to comment on this, is one of the main themes in the book. Uh, I read it as being based upon connections between people connections between an individual and their community and connections between communities. And I'll give a couple of examples. The family, the main family are Muslims, but they're a type of Muslim called Alawati or Alawite, I think that's how you say it. And they they seem to be a, a smaller part or somehow related to Shia Muslims, and then there's Sunni Muslims. And they're all, and so that's just one example of you can't just call this person a Muslim because, yes, you can in one sense, but in another sense, even within that, there are further distinctions and then there are further relationships have to be dealt out with amongst Muslims themselves to work out where they sit within that community. How how is that one of the, the, the themes you were developing in this work? Yeah, so it's very similar to the questions you were asking about the place, uh, the, 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 the specificity of place that... Um, you know, very rarely when we're talking about the Muslim community, which is, you know, nearly 2 billion people, 25% of the global population, very rarely are those kinds of sweeping claims realistic. You know, the way the Fox News narrative often portrays us um, is incredibly essentialist and simplistic and unrealistic. It's literally impossible to have a realistic impression of what it means to be a Muslim if you are literally clumping together 2 billion people, a Palestinian living in a garbage heap in Gaza is very different to a, you know, Indonesian, Australian Muslim kid living in Punchbowl in, in the western suburbs of Sydney. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I, I go to great lengths to show the specific aspects of not all Muslim communities, but this one particular Muslim community, the Lebanese Muslim Alawite community of Sydney. And I, I, I feel like it's that same point I was making about you get, the univer- you get the universal through the specific. If you can understand the specificity of this one community, it should resonate and give readers the implication that actually all Muslim communities are diverse and unique. And not only are they are they diverse from country to country, they're, they're diverse and, and unique from suburb to suburb, within state to state, within you know within uh, neighborhood to neighborhood. So, um, in my case, and in the case of the Lebanese Muslim Alawite community, you, you would know from reading the book that I'm actually very critical of the community. I call them a tribe, and you know mm-hmm. when I was a young man, I found the behavior of my community very tribal. But as I've gotten older, I've become a lot more sympathetic to the reason why my community had to operate this way. You pointed out that they are a branch of Shiism. So if you are an Alawite living in Australia, you are a minority within a minority within a minority within a minority because Muslims are already a minority in Australia and then Sunnis are the Muslim majority. So uh, if you're a Shiite, you're a minority Muslim. 
And then if you're an Alawite, you're a minority of Shiism because because Alawites are a small group uh, who branch off from Shiism. And so it's a very heavily marginalized group, group. And historically, it's a heavily persecuted group. And so for that reason, it makes sense that the community can become very tribal. They can become very committed to forcing the young members of their tribe to marrying each other, pushing you know, a, a boy from the tribe and a girl from the tribe to get married and have children to expand the, the tribe. You can see those wedding scenes that I've written. They're very celebratory. There's a lot of joy and excitement there because in a lot of ways, subconsciously, unconsciously, it's the celebration of the perpetuation and the continuation of a historically marginalized group. So uh, you would know from reading the book that that life was not for me, but, I, but I'm sympathetic to the, to the members of my community and my tribe who have had to choose that kind of life and who have fought to contain, contain that kind of life. Because for them, you know, uh, for my father, for example, it was really about survival. Mm. Now, Muhammad, the main character in the book, as I was reading the book, he's the, he is the main character. And as a reader, I'm kind of going for him. I'm on his team. Then there are parts in the book where the main character might be, Barney might be thinking something and he will think about someone else who walks into his, into wherever he happens to be, who might be Asian or Indian. And he thinks, and he might even say occasionally, what would come to be very racist statements. He might refer to Asians as in derogatory terms or Italians in derogatory terms. And as the reader, I'm sort of jarred and I'm thinking, wow, here I was in this protection of thinking, gosh, aren't I, aren't I a good reader? Here I am siding with this, as you said, this fourth descending minority, minority of minority of minority of minority. But even this marginalized person can still have views that that, that can be rejected. So it's a, what's the, what's the, what are you driving at there? Yeah, great question. Um, so yeah, I think if you read the book, um, firstly, remember that I am 36 years old. I have a a doctorate. I am an award-winning author. I am a father. I am the director of a literacy movement called Sweatshop. Uh, that 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 Banny Adam is a twenty-year-old fictional boy, loosely based on who I was as a young man. And so, the first point I should make is that I very consciously create his his thoughts, knowing full well when he's reinforcing negative behavior. It's not like I'm just you know revealing my idiotic thoughts. I'm very aware and I'm very in control of how Banny behaves and thinks. Um, and, you know, because I use very retrospective aspects in creative writing, like proleptic writing, and there's a lot of foreshadowing, um, you know, there's an older voice that's actually my voice, the older mm. Michael Muhammad Ahmed voice and the, the, the wisdom of the father that's constantly coming through. But when Banny is in his, you know, in his youth and he's thinking things through, he can often reinforce not just racist ideas, he can reinforce misogynistic ideas, he can reinforce homophobic ideas he can reinforce incredibly violent ideas and it goes back to that point i was making before about choosing the name banny adam and so this is where i think things get a bit confusing for a lot of my fans and a lot of readers and they've asked this question many times so i i'm, I'm glad you've asked as well because it gives me an opportunity to explain a lot of people who have been reading my work and support it but have still asked the question i wonder if uh, i wonder what muhammad is doing by um, revealing some of the negative aspects of his community because he, he always says that he wants to subvert the negative stereotypes. But in many ways, 
this book and my books in general reinforce a lot of the stereotypes that you have of Arab and Muslim communities in, in, in Sydney, Australia. My, um, my explanation is that I'm not actually interested in telling a positive story to counteract negative stories. I know that there are a lot of negative stories in Australia and around the world which reinforce negative images and ideas about Arab and Muslim communities. But my job as a writer, my business as a writer, is not to tell some happy, positive, unrealistic, overly romantic narrative about our community in order to subvert all the negativity. My job as a creative writer is to tell a truthful story. And the truthful story, in my opinion, is not a positive one. It's a complex one. It's one where you see the strength, you see the beauty, you see the poetry, you see Benny, you know, coming through with strong... Uh, you know, progressive ideas on gender, on race, on class, on sexuality, time and time again. But at the same time, he's just a human being. He's a, and he's a boy. He's a young man. And so at the same time as him having the capacity for great love and great awareness and intelligence, he also has the capacity for hatred and fear and ignorance. And I think what ultimately you get from reading the book from start to finish is a complex three-dimensional portrayal of what it means to be a person from a minority living in Australia in the year 2021. Mm. One other, and the book has a lot of comedy in it, a lot of, to my pathos, it has a lot of points are made through humorous scenes. And I wanted just to run through a couple of those and then ask you about them. There's one, one scene I've, I've, marked out and I've read it about three times since I read it the first time. I think it's great where one character is a Maronite Christian who is a, they're a Lebanese right of, of Catholic Christians who lives in the main, what the, the main street where the action happens in Lakemba. And the lady brings around to Banny's parents one day, a picture of Jesus and they're caught because they don't know what to do. They don't want to, they've got to be hospitable. Their religion says, the parents' religion says, we have to be hospitable people. We can't just throw this thing out. But then there's there's a tradition against not putting up pictures of deities or wise people, et cetera, like that in the house, sort of an ideology type view. And then, so that creates the scene. Then you have this wonderful idea. You go, that the, the parents were caught between, um, what's the, oh, no, I've forgotten it. The dome, and, the dome of the rock and a hard place. The dome of the rock and a hard place. Yeah, written it. Then I thought, oh, that that's just that just brings it home so perfectly. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, so just to recap that uh, story, um, it, it, it's so interesting how uh, complex uh, actual religious thought is and religious communities are. You know, if you look at the mainstream new atheist movement that is um, very much anti-religion. Uh, it's not just I'm an atheist for the sake of being an atheist or because I just don't believe in God, but it's a, a powerful movement that's trying to argue that religion is the, you know, the, the biggest evil in the world and, and it needs to end. We need to get rid of it. I'm, I'm talking, of course, about people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, what I think uh, is the big problem with the way they articulate religion is they, they very much essentialize uh, communities of faith and simplify um, the, 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 the diversity and the complexity of thought and opinion um, that comes from those communities of faith. And so, uh, and, 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 and very rarely give um, 
much uh, they, do they give much space for um, for the for the idea of diversity of interpretation and how human beings just generally navigate their lives. I think, you know, if you if you listen to Richard Dawkins, you, you get the impression that every Muslim or and even every Christian is just a kind of bumbling idiot who's just reading the Quran or the Bible very literally and just uh, living their life 100% according to what it's saying. Or, or, or they're just not a real believer in their faith. But actually, you know, in the story you just recounted, you, you see how... Uh, Communities are constantly trying to navigate in sophisticated ways the um, the the ideas that tend to contradict and conflict with each other in in an in an ancient faith. So on the one hand, um, in the Muslim community, it's a sin to put up images of Jesus and and Muhammad and and God, for example. On the other hand, you have to love thy neighbor, which is one of the Ten Commandments. It's part of the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim tradition. And so what happens when your Christian neighbor brings an image of Jesus to your house as a gift and you're a Muslim? And so, you know, I, I am constantly trying to explore that diversity of opinion and the, and, the, and the contradictions and the way, you know, minority communities and religious communities are constantly trying to navigate and reinterpret their faith and make sense of their faith in order to participate um, in a functional life uh, as part of a member of a functional community, I, I want to point out that, that that because this this question started with your observation that the book is filled with humor. You know, I I'm not actually a funny guy. Some people think I am, but 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 I I'm not trying to be funny. And you know, I, I you anyone that's been listening to this interview might have already gotten the impression from the last thirty minutes of us talking that. Um, I'm not making jokes. I'm, I'm very serious about the about literature and about race politics, for example. And so um, it always is a little bit surprising when people tell me my work is quite funny. But what I've come to understand over the last couple of years of, of receiving this feedback is that I, I generally think that Arabs are funny, you know? Right. Um, Arab communities, uh, especially in... Um, in uh, you know Arab communities outside of the Arab world, you know Arab diasporic communities are naturally very quirky characters who have very big personalities, and I think those big personalities really come through in the book. And if I'm doing a really good job as a writer of portraying the diversity and the sophistication of my community, if I just do a good job of portraying who they are. Re, a, a, in, a, in a realistic and believable way, the humor will just come out all on its own because the community is inherently funny. And, you know, lebs, you know, the leb boys that I grew up around, some of the ridiculous things that I used to see come out of their mouths, I think are just inherently funny. And so if I just recount it as I observed it, it will just, I think, incidentally make you laugh. Mm. Another chapter which has some, has, has some comic comedy in it, but it ends quite seriously. And it's almost a, to me, it was a very a sort of hinging chapter in the book. Chapter seven, it was, and it starts off with a scene that I, amongst, I don't have any Lebanese heritage in me, but I know some people who do, and I have seen the parents when they have to go out at night, and this happens in this chapter. the The mum doesn't want these children who are going to be home alone for three hours to starve to death. So out come about thirty dishes, and they're all put on the kitchen bench and covered in glad wrap. The parents leave, and then the elder brother goes, "Quick, let's go!" And off they go to McDonald's or somewhere, and they come back. And I just thought, "Oh, that's that's just such a it just 
paints the generations changing. There's no, it's not heavy handed. It just happens naturally in the book. And you just, you can, as the reader, you just think, oh, gosh, I'm, God, I'm actually learning something here. I'm getting a story and I'm just being shown bits of a culture, which was, I, I, personally, I thought that was great. I got to respond because it's such an interesting uh, dichotomy that I'm exploring in my writing. So, um, you know, uh, when I was growing up, because because I'm an artist, I, I, my, my community as a child was the Arab Muslim community. But at transitioning out of that community, getting a university education, I was the first in my family, not just my immediate family, but my extended Arab family, all of the Arabs that migrated from Lebanon to Australia in the 70s. Um, I was the first to obtain a university education. And so as I transitioned into the arts community, I became much more a part of a white left-wing middle-class community. And anytime they would see me eating McDonald's or KFC while I was you know, working with them in, in the arts as a writer or as an actor in my earlier days, um, these white middle-class artists would be looking at me utterly confused and even disgusted. And they'd be like, how can you put that crap in your body? And, you know, this is usually when they were on my turf, when they were in Bankstown and, you know, they were getting really excited about the, the falafels at the local, mm. Le- local Lebanese restaurant. And I think it was so hard for them to understand that uh, McDonald's were our falafels. You know, McDonald's and KFC is exotic to us. That if you grow up in a house where um, you're regularly eating your mum and your grandma's traditional Lebanese dishes, that can be incredibly uninspiring. And so, yeah, when we were children, when... So I'll say that again. Um, yeah, when we were children, we were constantly trying to get our hands on, you know, the fast food. And it was always, I remember it was always breaking my mother's heart. Um, I, again, it's that point as a writer where I'm constantly trying to juxtapose these cultural identities, you know, the, what it means to be a minority in Australia, what it means to be Arab and Muslim and a person of color. And the contrast uh, of living in a, you know, a white settler colonial state. And um, I, I never try to preach or ex- or scream these politics at my reader. I just show the story. And I think, you know, Australian readers are intelligent and readers around the world are intelligent enough that they can actually decipher what is being said and what it all means. And, you know, all you got to do is just show in really great detail these um, these sequences, you know, the, 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 the table full of Lebanese food and the kids running out to get um, to get McDonald's and KFC as soon as their parents turn their back. Mm. And you don't let you don't let us readers off though in chapter seven. And this is a lot of a lot of parts of the book follow this same approach to to the storytelling, where it, so we get the the relief they come home with the hamburgers, but the elder brother becomes quite violent in that chapter, and there's an incident where food gets thrown around and I think it's the sister becomes a little bit subservient and comes along to the floor to clean it up, even though the elder brother seems to me has been the one who's acted inappropriately and it should be either he cleans it up or it stays on the floor or something, but no, it's cleaned up. And then the parents eventually come home and the father, I think a a door gets broken or something. And the father of the house, then he himself becomes quite violent in a scene. And so you've seen at the beginning of the chapters had this cultural disconnection, the Lebanese food versus the hamburgers to two generations. But then by the end, you see how the, you can't actually sever a generation fully because the father obviously had violence in him and it's manifest itself in the son. So there's still that family connection. You can't cut that part out. That's much harder to cut out than hamburgers and falafels. Thank you. Look, that's a really fantastic interpretation of what that chapter is about. I, um, uh, 
I think people can interpret my chapters however they want, but the way you interpreted it is is exactly how I tried to convey it. And so, uh, you know, we're on the same page, literally, when it comes to the way you read that scene. So that scene and that chapter is about the cycle of violence. And it is about how there's so much uh, violence and patriarchy in um, this minority community living in Sydney that is being passed down from generation to generation. And for Banny, as a critical thinker, as a reader who's constantly using the canon, using the literary canon, using the Western canon and also the Arab and Muslim canon, to, to make sense of his reality um, is, is ultimately trying to break those bad patterns that are passed down. This is not a um, controversial observation. There's a lot of research that has shown time and time again that patriarchy uh, and, and male violence is learned behavior. It's not natural behavior. It's not behavior that we're born with. It's behavior that's passed down from men to men. And in many ways, it's learned behavior that, that, that women are taught as well. Young women are, are taught to reinforce patriarchal values in the same way that young men are. And so I try and show that through the, through the fight and through the father enacting violence that mirrors the, the violence of the older brother. And, and I feel like you've just come to the conclusion that this is about the cycle of violence because it, I, I, don't really, I really don't want to push that idea onto my reader. What I want is for the reader to read the work and see those patterns playing out. And I, and I think that's the best part of being a creative writer is the idea of showing, taking somebody on a journey and allowing them to come to their own interpretations. There's a, there's a good chance that the interpretation you'll draw out of it, like the one you just drew out, Bede, will line up with what I wanted you to say. But sometimes I'm always really surprised and impressed that sometimes the interpretations and the conclusions that people draw from my stories are different from what I intended. And I, and I really think that it's not my job as a writer, as a creative writer, to do anything other than just tell the story in the most compelling and exciting and interesting way possible and welcome that duplicity of, um, of interpretation and, and, and different readings of the work. Mm. Another aspect of the book is it draws a lot of references from different cultural points. And what I have in mind here, uh, it is full of references to books that would traditionally be placed in the Western canon of literature. There were just – I began writing some down and then I just started running out of room. There's everything from Oscar Wilde to Faulkner to Hemingway to James Joyce to Lord of the Rings to the Narnia series, Harry Potter. And so there's that highbrowish sort of bookish world. You've also referenced a lot of sitcoms. Um, I think Everyone Loves Raymond gets a few mentions in there. And then you also reference, without, once again, without real context, if you don't know what this thing is, you're going to have to get Google out. The, the classic RX-7 gets a reference somewhere in the book. It's just, it's just sit there so, as, as though the reader just, everyone, of course everyone knows what an RX-7 is. It, no explanation necessary. And um, what, what was, what's going on there? Yeah, uh, again, a great question. I think um, that's the reality of living as a second-generation Arab-Australian Muslim male with a university education in the year 2021, is that, you know, we are, uh, I am, and my fictional autobiographical version of myself, Vanny, is um, constantly navigating multiple worlds. He can engage in the, you know, the, the street culture, being excited about the cars and about the brawls that happen in, in the neighborhood. 
and at the same time, uh, he can engage in William Faulkner and um, and Tolkien and Hemingway, and he's constantly negotiating his race and his class and his gender and his sexuality um, with his education. And what you get again and again and again, I'd like to think, is a complex portrayal of a human being who, you know, likes every, the TV show Everybody Loves Raymond and watches Seinfeld and at the same time is reading, you know, uh, The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of Easter eggs in the book, I, I'd like to think, that there's so many quotes that are in there that are, you wouldn't even know they were quotes from books. Um, some of them are really explicit and others are kind of just, interspersed because Benny uses the language of the canon. He's constantly quoting the canon to nav navigate his world. Um, so many people have asked me very late in the book, one of the chapters ends with the word Sith, S-S-T-H. Uh, quite a few people have asked me, what does that mean? I haven't given it away yet, but what I will say is for anybody who's really keen to find out why I use that word at the end of the chapter, um, check out the book by Toni Morrison called Jazz and you'll find your answer. Ah, very good. Um, no, it's very interesting. The, the as a, as an author, well, well, one thing on what you just said then, Banny's, and uh, comment if you'll comment on this. Yes, Banny has all these all these interactions you've just said, all different culture at all different levels, but it's not as though he. And I think this was this is something I also drew from the book, which I thought was a really enjoyable thing to read. It's not as though he's standing within one culture and just has to tolerate the other. So it's not as though he loves Ernest Hemingway and he just tolerates everyone loves Raymond or he just tolerates going to the Belmore Police Citizens Youth Club. In in fact, he actually does it all. He's like the Renaissance man of Lakemba. Yeah, um, well, you know, when I was a young man, I wanted to be a superhero, literally. And so I was you know, studying at university and, and working as a writer and a professional actor. And I was uh, training to become a professional boxer. And I, I had an amateur career for a little while in boxing. And I was trying to do everything. You know, I was trying to be the best version of myself that I could be. But I was also a kid. And so I loved comic books. And I love, I mean, I said I wanted to be a superhero. I literally, you know, loved Spider-Man. Um, and I loved, uh, you know, TV, you know, TV shows, situational comedies. I loved um, making trouble. I loved going out and just kind of, you know, laughing about um, and picking on some random person in the street who was walking funny or tripped over. You know, like I was a I was a complicated kid, like most kids, and so um, I wanted to to pull that out in the book. I wanted to show, uh, you know, Benny for all of his flaws and all of his strengths and all of his kind of beauty. You know, his his the moments where he um, is very childlike, but also the moments where he has uh, incredible levels of wisdom. I'll also say that um, uh, in many ways I feel like the problem um, with the, uh, the portrayal of Arab and Muslim men historically is, is that, you know, you usually imagine us to be uh, like, you know, in Australia, gangsters and drug dealers and sexual predators, specifically after a series of incidents like the scaf gang rapes that took mm -hmm. place in the year 2000. That was... That was promoted in the mainstream media as a problem of Arab and Muslim culture, as though, you know, there wasn't a long history of sexual assault and, and, and predatory behavior from all men uh, in Australia across all cultural backgrounds. It was, you know, it was being promoted as this very unique problem that only existed in our community. Um, 
And so, you know, in, in the context of that, I really wanted to show where some of that, where some of those stories actually come from. I, did, I didn't just want to show like this wonderful side to my community. I wanted to show the predatory aspects of, that come out of being a working class Arab and Muslim man in Western Sydney. Um, you know, th- there was a culture of misogyny that, that, that ended up, resu- that resulted in very predatory behavior. Uh, there was a culture of violence that I play that I explore in the book. You know, there's some horrendous uh, scenes where where the men in the community, you know, commit violent crimes that uh, that you know you should be doing that. They, that if they got it, they, if they did it, that if they were caught by the police, they they would do many years in prison for. Mm. And so I wanted to mm. explore that. I didn't want to shy away from that. And at the same time, I wanted to show you know, banning sophistication and, and critical thinking. And, and, and I think you get a real picture of the community as a whole, uh, the warts and the, the rainbows, you know, side by side. Okay. Now we have to finish up pretty soon, Mohammed. So I'd like some, as they say, some a bit of inside baseball from you. And one question is, this is the third book, third novel that you've, that I know of that you have written. As an author, how do you, Writing is a technical skill, and I also imagine it has a massive creative impulse. How do you, as as you get more advanced as a writer, how do you compare later books to earlier books, your own books? Yeah, well, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, so, firstly, I'll say that one aspect of the the book that we didn't really get to talk about that um, I just want to stress before I answer your question mm. is about love. Uh, you know, I I, I think. Um, the the overarching story, not just about Banny giving this letter to his son, but Banny's journey towards you know some kind of resolution for his for his for his life is about finding the love of his life, and it is about finding somebody that makes him whole. The book's called The Other Half of You, but it's about it's really I think at, at its core a romantic novel. It's a love story which centers. Um, uh, the, the the kind of romantic aspects of the Arab and, and Muslim literary tradition, you, you would know from having read it, I draw reference to Khalil Gibran, who's a very famous Lebanese mm-hmm. poet, and and, a ver- and and the Arab world's Romeo and Juliet, uh, which is called Leila and Majnun, which is a couple of hundred years earlier. But, you know, I really think that there's this long literary tradition in the Arab and Muslim world that's forgotten um, of romance and chivalry and 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 poetry. And, at the, and, and you know, in the, in the, foreground are these major stories about you know about these epic street brawls and these like conflicts and you know reinforcing patriarchal traditions but the subtext and what's going on behind it all is this this love story and ultimately i think people will be very happy with where they end up with the story and where they see benny end up i think it is a a, a, it's a it's a it's a happy conclusion to what is other what would otherwise be a really sad and tragic and awful story yeah so that's the first thing i want to say now in terms of the question about craft um, and the, the skill of being a creative writer, I think this is a great question to ask because so often people assume that it's just a um, that it's just a natural talent when we're talking about creative writing. And you know, I meet so many people who tell me they're going to be a, a novelist or they're going to write a book one day um, without having had any training or education in creative writing. And, and I, I always try to explain to them that you couldn't get away with that in any other industry. I, I wouldn't wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to perform brain surgery. I wouldn't wake up tomorrow and say, I'm, I'm a plumber now. I'm just going to go and do some plumbing. <laughs> you know, I, I, the, the, the skill of creative writing, in my case, in addition to all the wonderful and crazy experiences I had that I want to share with the world, 
Um, the, the, the skill of creative writing, in my case, required 10 years of university education. Now, some people, even as I'm saying this, kind of believe what I'm saying, but still go, yeah, but you're still exaggerating. It's still just a natural ability. It's still just a creative talent. Like, I think when I try to explain this, very few people really know what I mean. So I've got a good example to help people understand exactly what I mean by saying that creative writing is a skill. It's not just something you can just wake up and do naturally and mm. organically. So I, I, as a creative, as a teacher of creative writing, I, I usually ask my, my students something like this. I'll say, what's the difference between uh, fiction, autobiography, and autobiographical fiction? What's the difference between a metonym, a dead metaphor, an a- absolute metaphor, and a personification? What's the difference between closed first-person perspective and open third-person perspective? Now, it shouldn't be too hard to understand that these are aspects of creative writing that you can learn. And if you learn these things, you can apply them to your creative writing. And if you apply them to your creative writing, your creative writing can get better. Mm. So that's the way in which I try to help people understand that creative writing is a skill and that it requires education and training in addition to whatever amazing and incredible and unique and creative life you've had that will enable you to tell an an important story. The second part of your question that I want to address is, you know, going from one book to the other. I I give myself the rule that I never read my older works. I never, I, you know, I read, I wrote the tribe in 24. I mean, I finished the tribe in 2014. I finished the Lebs in 2018. Whenever I go back and read those books, I cringe. I <laughs> always think that they were terrible, terribly written. And that's in spite of the fact that, you know, there were award-winning books that were critically acclaimed and commercial successes. Um, I, 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 I really think that it's important for a writer to constantly be pushing themselves to do better. And I'm always pushing myself um, as a creative writer to tell uh, not just new and interesting stories and, and more compelling stories than my previous book, but to do it in a way that pushes my capacity for understanding language. Um, not just, in, as you would know from reading my work, not just my my appreciation and understanding of the English language, but also the Arabic language, because I, I use quite a lot of Arabic in my writing. And, and, and I, I really think the most important um, aspect of literature, what makes literature different from just a regular book or a regular story is language is not just the story, but the beauty of the way the story is put together, the way the words are put together. And I really think for anyone who's read this book, you, you, I, I hope you'll appreciate the, um, the, the great links that I have gone to uh, showing the English language and the Arabic language in its most beautiful capacity. I'll, yeah. let the, I'll let my critics decide if I was successful in that goal. No, that's cool. and I th- well, I think one way I found it successful was at the end of the book, it's telling when, when I first read this book, picked it up the other half of you i thought okay it's the father to the son the son's the other half of the father and then when you get to the end you think well okay sure that holds up but the other half of you a person has so many it seems impossible but they have so many halves is it the other half of the main character to his culture the main character to his wife is is the it, should the culture be saying oh you're the other half of us now you have to behave yourself properly you have to get married there's just so many ways that that title can be understood there's so many halves in this book there is a lot of halves. There's also a lot of others. And I think the word other is so interesting right now while my book is making its way into the world. There are two other books that have that start with the term the other. There's the other mm. black girl and there's the book The Others. And uh, it's so interesting that the idea of other is such a compelling 
concept that that a lot of writers use it in their work and then they use it in their titles. Um, I think, you know, in Australia, when we refer to the other, we mean the minority, you know, and I've, I grew up as an other. I grew up feeling othered and being marginalized um, and being pigeonholed in ways that I've already explained, so I won't go back over it. But I really wanted to explore that idea of, of half and what it means to be, you know, uh, uh, to be uh, living as a, you know, with like a, living strategically between multiple cultures and multiple identities. And I also wanted to explore the idea of being the other and what it means to feel mm. regularly marginalized and trying to find your place in a in, in such a culturally and linguistically diverse country as, as Australia. Mm, thank you. Well, Mohammed, we'll have to finish up now. Can you let us know what you have on next? What's coming down the pipe? Um, the last time we spoke was less than a year ago. It was a couple of months ago, actually. And we were talking about this new book that I'd released as the editor called After Australia. I um, have now just uh, finished The Other Half of You, which is my third novel, which took five years to write and is 90,000 words. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty ambitious book. Um, mm -hmm. I'm enjoying a little bit of downtime now. I'm, I'm sleeping a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm, resting and, and making time for my son and my partner and the and my family and people that I love. When I get past this period of um, fatigue, I have a play coming out um, called The Demon, which will be presented at the Asia Festival in Adelaide and then at the Sydney Opera House uh, for a season later this year. I also have numerous writers' festivals that I think uh, people can check out if they're around. Uh, I'll be at the Canberra Writers Festival, the Melbourne Writers Festival, the Antidote Festival, and uh, the uh, a Writers Festival in Adelaide. And so I um, I think uh, it's going to be a period of mainly celebration and, and public appearances promoting my new work. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for your time. And I would encourage listeners to grab a copy of The Other Half of You. You can't miss the cover. It's very striking hand over a hand and sort of a tricolor outline. I think your, your last book had a great cover as well after Australia. Um, and yeah, please pick it up. And I would like to thank Muhammad for his time today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on your program. It is always a pleasure. And I want to again finish by saying assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you. And I extend that piece to all of our wonderful listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Is there a response to that? Is it normally like a response? Yeah, you can give it a shot if you want. It's wa alaikum assalam. Wa alaikum assalam. Excellent. Very good pronunciation. Uh, good. Well, thank you, Muhammad. I will uh, hopefully we'll speak again. Thanks, Bede. I'm sure we will.